as Micah tends to be, uh, as we read the passage, it's a little bit like, wow, that sounds a little bit heavy, and it is. We're going to read about and learn about why it's a good thing that it is heavy. Um, but first, there's, uh, there's a, I'm kind of into Netflix documentaries and kind of binge them a bit sometimes. Has anyone seen um, Dynasties, or maybe how it's properly pronounced, Dynasties? Uh, yeah? Has anyone seen that? Have you seen the episode with the penguins? Yeah, so, okay, well, so at least one person has. He's already groaning because he knows it's really sad. Um, well, there, there, there's one episode where uh, there are these penguins. Um, there's a camera crew filming them, and uh, like some penguins kind of get separated from the pack. And penguins need to be in a pack together, otherwise they'll, like, they'll freeze to death. So these are these 20 or so penguins that are separated. And there's a, they're in this gully, there's like a snowdrift that has come in, and the camera crew's watching this, and they're like literally crying because it is really sad. I'm like literally crying as I'm watching it. Um, poor penguins, I mean, they're so cute. Uh, and then we find out that they have babies with them, so it's not even just like the cute penguins, it's like the cute penguin babies, because like, and the possibility of them surviving is becoming less and less. And then you find out, on top of it all, like a storm is about to come in. And the camera crew is like, I don't know if we can even stay here. So they're basically thinking like these penguins are all going to die. It's a hopeless spot. And uh, as we get to, as the camera crew watches this sad event, you're like there watching it as well. You're like, oh, this is horrible. This is hopeless. What, how, how are they even going to be saved? There's no hope for those penguins. And I think that's a lot of what it's like for people who've been oppressed in Micah's day. That's, that's why Micah, his words are so strong. That's why it seems so scary, because there are people that he's trying to defend that are completely and utterly hopeless by themselves. There's no way out. And the same is true for people in our day. There are people who have been just as oppressed in our day, and there is no way out. They're blocked from surviving, let alone flourishing at all. I mean, the reason I was born in America um, was because my grandfather's family had to flee Armenia because of the Armenian genocide. So my grandfather had his family moved from Armenia to France, eventually to the U.S. Um, but like genocide is like something that happens all the time. Uh, but there are lots of other examples of oppression during our time. Uh, we might think like pornography doesn't really hurt anybody, but there was a study that found that covered over nine countries that showed 49% of sexually exploited women, aka sexually trafficked women, said that pornography is made of them while they're being sold for sex. And the two kind of fuel each other. The, the, more, the larger the pornography industry is, the more money is, the more that demand that creates, that is able to also fuel the, the human, trafficking human trafficking industry. Or um, what about poverty and life expectancy? If you're poor, you will live 10 years less than other people. So the price of being poor, like literally, is 10 years off your life. That, that's not right. There are oppressive systems that perpetuate these injustices. Now, these systems didn't come out of nowhere. They were created and are maintained by people who are in those oppressive systems. And us in the West, with all of our power, the most powerful people of our time, probably the most powerful people that have ever existed, though we may not feel like it, we're a bit complicit. Because we, not, we may not be directing human trafficking. If you are, let's have a chat after the service. But we don't really do much to change these systems. They're just kind of there. And because we're powerful, we're also entitled. And entitled people assume for themselves what isn't actually theirs. They take. And then they oppress. So we are both the oppressed, because we're under these systems as well, but we're also the oppressors. We have both of those things going on. And it can feel hopeless, like, like our penguins. But who's going to help us? How can we change? And now, in our dilemma, the Lord is sending a storm, and that's what Mike is talking about. Um, but even in that storm, even in the midst of God making 
setting everything right by, by bringing justice to bear. There's hope for the oppressed. There's hope for the oppressors. The hope for the oppressed is justice. Like there is justice that is going to come. The hope for the oppressors, for them to cry out, is mercy. There's forgiveness. Now the only way that both those who are oppressed and those who are oppressors can have a hope is through Jesus, because he rescues us all. And we'll talk about how we learn about that through this text today. So we're going to talk about first justice against oppressive systems. Then we're going to talk about justice against oppressive people. And then hope for the broken, as Micah ends in hope for the broken. So let's first talk about justice against oppressive systems. Uh, Micah calls out, like, he's, he's not really pulling any punches. He's calling out everybody. He, uh, the first system that Micah calls out is the legal system, the wealthy people. Uh, in verse 1, it says, uh, at morning's light they carry it out, these people who are planning evil. Well, what morning's light is when all the judicial systems, the legal systems, all those kind of decisions would be made. So the morning's light is when someone who's experiencing injustice ought to have hope. It's like, oh, well, that's when they're going to like rule in my favor because a good decision would be you know, for this person not steal my land. But it's that time where these people are planning evil, plotting evil, planning iniquity. So it's in, and it's in their power to do it. At morning's light, they carry it out. They carry out this evil because it is in their power to do it. These people are powerful. They're in charge of it. These are people with money. These are people with earthly power. These are people who, who know how to contort the legal system for their own advantage. There's a power the system has that gives advantage to the oppressor and a disadvantage to the oppressed. It's the same as in our day. And so how, how does this work out? This is what verse 2 talks about. Um, and by the way, I'm just going like, to be jumping into those verses. So if you have a Bible, keep it open or um, keep your phone open. Um, so how, how does this work out? Well, verse 2 says, They covet fields, they seize them, the houses, and they take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. So they're seizing property. They're using this broken system to advantage themselves at the expense of others. They, they, they see something they want, and they basically figure out, legal loopholes to get there. They defraud people of their homes. They rob people of their inheritance. That means not only are, are they a problem for people in their present, but their future. They're robbing people of their present. They're robbing people of their future. So in the morning, what should have been a metaphor for people finding justice. That's why if you read the Psalms, the psalmist says, I will seek you in the morning. That's, that's, that's a psalm, the, the psalmist crying out for God to come through in ways that he needs to come through. What should, this, that's a metaphor for people finding justice, finding mercy. This is now being contorted and using against them for oppression. There's also um, an unjust religious system. So these are these, uh, we have like these pseudo-prophets who are creating this political religious institution, encouraging this injustice, this injustice to carry on and attempting to contort God's word to that end. That's why in verse six, um, that, that's what the, the meaning of verse six is. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy against these things, disgrace will overtake us. Basically, the, the prophets themselves are saying, don't bring God's word to bear here. Like, let's move on. Shame is not going to overtake us. It's not our place. We talk about spiritual things. We don't talk about, you know, the physical world of stuff, which is exactly the same stance that churches in the American South took in the Civil War as well as the Civil Rights Movement. We're not going to talk about people being oppressed. That's no, an earthly, physical thing. We're talking about spiritual things, as if the two are not connected. So in Micah, the prophets were presuming on God's love. They were preaching half-truths, giving motivational talks about God's love, never talking about justice or punishment. And surely, in our time, like, we love the idea of justice coming to bear. Like, I don't know if you, if you follow, there's a big, massive saga about the, um, 
uh, the the what used to be the post box cafe that was going to be some kind of international like food market. Well, basically they built out this um, their their store without getting planning permission first, and now because of that, now they have to tear it all down because the council is saying, well, you didn't ask us if you could do that, you did it anyway. Now you have to tear it all down. The amount of business owners I know who are like so excited they have to tear down their like their business because they didn't go through the right channels, they didn't do it right. Like people are just like, oh yeah. Just feels good. Like, yeah, things should be put right. Like, there's there's a level of uh, self righteousness in there, of course. But there, but we want we want to see things done right. We want to not only to see the right things, but the right way to get to the right things. We like when that happens. But these prophets, who should have been speaking against all the wrong things, all the oppressive systems, should have been standing up for the poor. They're silent. But actually, they're more than silent. They're joining in. They pander to the rich and the powerful, and they tailor their messages for them instead of against them, and in turn, they just become another institution that takes advantage of others. The religious establishment uses religion to mask their sins, and that's nothing new, is it? We're used to hearing those stories. The church cannot stay silent when people are oppressed. If we aren't for the oppressed, who will be? And it's basically, the definition of righteous is someone that disadvantages themselves for someone else's advantage. So if we're acting the opposite, how can we call ourselves righteous? And there's a punishment that's going to come. Verse 10, to these people who are oppressing God's people, uh, God basically uses the same language against these people that they're probably giving to other people. So they're probably, as they're stealing land from people, as they're stealing homes from people, these people are probably saying, get up, go away. This is now my home. This is now my land. Now God is using that same language against these people. And what we find is that that social injustice um, is unholy. It's unclean before God. It says, get up, go away. This is not your resting place, all you who are oppressing my people, because it is defiled. You have made my land unholy. Land that was stolen is now going to be stolen from them. And what we get in, um, in verse 4 is kind of like a, a schoolyard taunt. Um, it says, they will taunt you with this mournful song. We're utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He takes it from me. The, the idea that's behind that is um, basically using their words and making fun of them. Going, oh, you're utterly ruined. Like, kind of like that's how like, God's coming against these people. <laughs> And it's not their land to begin with. It was God's land, and he gave it to people in order for everyone to flourish, not as an instrument of oppression. And so God's going to tell them to get up and go away. And in verse 3, we read that God is planning disaster, um, that they will no longer be able to walk proudly. The reason why that's translated to walk proudly is because the Hebrew underneath it is the idea of tying a millstone around someone's neck. I don't know about, like, grinding grain or, or kind of what a millstone actually is, so I had to look it up. It's basically like a big, massive, like, 1,300-pound slab of concrete or something, and that is being tied around people's necks. And there's no way for you to, like, walk upright at all if a 1,300 impossible burden is kind of around your neck. And this is what's coming for people who oppress others. There's no way to puff out your chest when this impossible burden is around your neck. And so this is God reversing the evil injustice. The powerful oppressing class was a millstone to others, and so now they have that weight upon themselves. So they have an impossible burden, and they don't have any land, and this gets all the more grave when we understand that what land meant to an Israelite. So God is removing the land from the people who are oppressing others, using land to oppress others. And land for an Israelite was a symbol of God's presence. 
It was a symbol of God's blessing. Without land, they were wanderers. They were, they were homeless. They, they had no place to go. Without it, without land, priests couldn't survive, which means the temple can't survive, which means people can't worship God. So without land, you cannot like, worship God the way that he wants us to. Uh, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is like one of my favorite films. There's this quote that Delmar has. I don't know if you guys have seen it. If you haven't, you have to see it today. It's a requirement. Um, Delmar, one of the guys, it's a great name. That's, that's the name of a character, Delmar. It's great. Um, it says, uh, you ain't no kind of man if you ain't got land. Which is exactly what's going on here. They are no kind of people without land because everything was tied up with the land that God gave them. It's a symbol of God's blessing. Now, obviously, it's a bit different for us today. God doesn't, like, parcel out land to us. Um, yeah, so, but what, what does that mean for us, though? Uh, so, if, if we believe the Bible is actually speaking, and these are God's words, actually speaking us today, like, what, what is God teaching us through this? Well, um, land, I think, what it really can easily signify for us is every good gift we have. If land was a symbol of blessing, what does blessing mean for us? It's every good gift. And not just spiritual stuff, but physical stuff as well. Sometimes you might be like, oh, God's blessings are just like spiritual realities, like, which are amazing. Um, like we are freed from being oppressed by sin, or we are free from uh, being uh, overtaken by, uh, you know, by death, or all these kind of things. And that's great, and that's amazing. And so let's praise God for that. But it's also every, every good gift comes from God. So it means friendship. That means the homes we have. That means uh, the jobs that we have everything from spiritual to physical to whatever. It's all a blessing from God. The blessing of being able to understand God's word is one of those. And so if if every good gift comes from the Father, and that means uh, God has told us we are blessed, not just to bless ourselves, but to be a blessing to others. So if the Israelites are only concerned about land, of not using that rightly, or using that to oppress others, if, if now we understand God's blessing is something more broad than just merely land, surely like, there, we see there's a responsibility that we have. If we are blessed from spiritual to physical to everything, if, as Ephesians said, we've been ble- given every spiritual blessing through Jesus, then that means how are we blessing others with the blessing that we have? If we are enjoying a gift from God, any blessing, and hoarding it for ourselves, or even using it to oppress others, which churches tend to do, right? God's not going to stand by by that. That's not what it means to have our lives aligned with God. Now, when we come face to face with injustice, um, we should and ought to get fired up, and I think that's good. We should, but you know who cares really more about setting things right? Is God. I mean, the rest of Micah is like a lot about how much God cares about setting wrong things right. And that's what justice is, is setting wrong things right. And God is just, so that means there's a bro- when there's a broken system, God is going to set it right eventually. And often when there's an oppressive system, the hope, our first hope, is either to reform that oppressive system or replace that oppressive system with another one that will probably end up being another oppressive system, like some kind of political regime change or something like that. But that just means we constantly are putting our hope in these human systems. Like, how can there be any real hope if we're we're only hoping on what we, we humans can come up for ourselves? We need a bigger hope than a system can have for us. And the only hope for justice to come through, through the brokenness of this world, is through the Lord. And if our justice comes from him, then that actually enables us to work for justice in a way that transcends any kind of human system to begin with. So it's not only good for us, it's good for others. I mean, God fights for justice. He's passionate about it. That means to reflect God's character in this world. For us to say something like, in Manchester as in heaven, as we do, is a protest against injustice. 
To fight against unjust systems is to reflect the same kind of passion that God has, and Christians ought to be leading the charge on this front. We're not gonna, we don't have loads of time to come up with examples, but one great example is Battelle. That's like a combination of um, rehabilitation and church and life skills and all sorts of things kind of rolled up, residents and all kind of rolled up into one here in Charlton. Um, we've done some things together. We're going to talk this month about what it means to partner more together as two churches together. But they're basically um, finding uh, people who the health system or uh, um, addiction systems or even like systems of poverty, all those kind of systems have, have ruined and not really helped these people out. And this church is a way of kind of setting that thing right, setting those things right, giving humans the care and dignity that we ought to have. I mean, reach out to the community is another great way. I mean, they may not identify as believers, but that's okay. Like, they're setting things right as they ought to as they're helping people who have been homeless for decades. So we want more of that stuff to happen. That's the kind of stuff that we want to see going on, not because we're good people or nice people or are politically motivated people or whatever. Um, hopefully, the, you know, those things are involved and part of who we are, but it's because of that's who God is. And if we're going to follow God, then we have no other choice than to act that way. Now, lest um, us think that we're immune to the punishment that God has to the unjust, um, let's briefly look at verse 3, where God says, Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. So this is the question. Who are this people? Who are the people that God is planning disaster against? Um, in Micah, it's a collective us. It's like humanity. The Bible has a bit more of a collective view of personhood than we do. We're very much individualistic. I am who I, you know, my decisions and things like that. Um, but in the Bible, it's a bit more communal, the idea of what personhood is, what identity is. Um, so we might say, oh, you know, I haven't done any of these things. Like, this, is, this punishment isn't on me. I haven't done anything wrong. We're all, but the problem is that we're all part of the same human family. And so this is really a part of who we are. And so before we kind of throw our hands up and be like, I'm innocent, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I think the thing we need to do first is, instead of prove our innocence, is lament with our human family of this is the kind of people that we are. What kind of people do this kind of stuff to each other? That's what we do. What kind of people traffic other human beings? Humans traffic other human beings. And those are the, those are the people that we are. So instead of throwing our hands up, instead of being smug about it, there is no room for self-righteousness in Micah. We can't be smug as a church. We have to go more through, I think, lament. I mean, like, even if we haven't done these specific things, God, have mercy on us. Now, how did the system get so broken? Well, the problem is broken people set it up. So there's justice against oppressive systems, but there's also justice against oppressive people, individuals, and Micah is firing his shots all over the place. Let's go first to the wealthy, the people who are in that like wealthy legal establishment. Micah says, woe to those. Woe is not a good thing to hear from anybody, by the way. It's a very bad thing. You don't want to hear woe from a prophet or from Jesus or from God. It's bad. You're like, ooh. Um, I've never said woe to anybody, but I don't know what that, that's a, it's probably a word I can't rep repeat. Um, so woe to those who plan iniquity, who, those who plot evil on their beds. So there's an unholy connection in this chapter between power and deception. Uh, to plan iniquity is like to, to deceive others. And plotting evil on your beds is like plotting, thinking up evil dreams as you're dreaming or staying up all night with your evil plans only to like enact them in the morning. These are people who just can't stop like doing things that only advantage themselves. A system that favors the powerfully deceptive is a, is a system that's based on coveting, right? It's on, on wanting what's not yours. 
The reason the system enables coveting, the reason why the system enables stealing, is because covetous and people who like to steal set up the system to begin with. We should rightly have a problem with broken systems, but not overlook the reality of broken people within them. And broken people, as in verse 8, uh, steal the rich, ro- you strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. So this is like, as if you were walking across, like passing somebody on the pavement, and you're like ripping off their coat right off and like running away. Um, like what in the world, who are these people? There's like an audacity here. And a, and a robe there was like, would, is part of someone's dignity. It's part of, uh, of, um, of who they are. Stealing someone's dignity, not only their stuff. And verses eight and nine, says they go to the most vulnerable people of this time, which were women and children, taking the homes from women, stealing God's blessing for the next generation. So the wealthy and legal people not faring too well. I, will, I wonder if the religious people, maybe they're a little bit better. No, they're not. Um, verse six, do not prophesy, the prophets, the prophets say, don't prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Basically, the rich desire prophets devoted to them and the rich will always have prophets devoted to them. The message that's de- de- devoted to the rich is there in verse 11, which is like the perfect message for where we are in Charlton. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just a prophet for these people. Now, of course, like God does not say you shouldn't drink wine, doesn't say you shouldn't drink beer. In fact, he prescribes wine and beer for all sorts of things. It's like, so what's going on here? Like, why is God having a problem with people drinking wine and beer here? Um, well, I think what we see is the people in the time of Micah had a massive desire for affluence, which is really similar to us, really similar to our neighborhood, because we're all entitled. The wine and beer symbolize everything affluent society is about. So it's basically people who are oppressing others, basically like kicking their feet up on others, using them as their footstool. These other people are like barely making it, barely surviving. And what are the, the people who are in charge of these systems doing? They're just drinking. They're just having a great time. They're enjoying themselves, like a sunny day in Charlton. This is wanting the kingdom, all the good stuff of the kingdom without the king. We talked about that last week. The kingdom without a king means it looks something that looks good on the outside. Hey, there's wine and beer here. That's not bad. Tell me more. I'd I'd be up for listening. And the people who seek this kingless kingdom, though, will always have prophets preaching to them. Kingless kingdom prophets will always have an audience. They're always going to find acceptance because they're always telling us the stuff we want to hear. Basically, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Have some more wine. Have some more beer. But just like a flower that is cut and put into a vase, though it will bloom for some time, in reality it's dead. It's exactly what a kingless kingdom is like. And a time is coming when all the petals will eventually fall off and it'll shrivel away to nothing. And that's what God is warning these people about in his punishment to the people who rely on their own power, who, do, who are seeking this kingdom without a king at the expense of others. God says, you won't be able to worship with me. I will not be present with you. And this is what verse 5 is about. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Basically, that means for the Israelite, no one in the assembly of the Lord means I am not going to be with you. You will not be able to worship me, which means there's no salvation for you. There's no rescue. There's no hope. The hope for those who have been oppressed is the God of justice to set things right. So that means if you find yourself in a spot like this, oppressed underneath the weight of the world, the weight of oppressive systems, the weight of oppressive people, we can and we should work for justice, but not in our own power. We should rely on the power of God to break through and work for us as we are working for justice to come through. And even if we don't see justice come through on this side of heaven, even if we try our hardest to see this come through and it doesn't come through, one day we know all things will be set right. And in the moment now, for all of us who have been oppressed, God sees 
God knows. He knows where you're at. And everything is in his hands, which is good news for those who've been oppressed. God cares more about your justice than you do. But again, if we take a moment, um, I think we find that we aren't innocent because we've done our part in oppressing others through deceiving. I mean, who hasn't wanted something for themselves that wasn't theirs? Like everybody, right? Everybody in this room. That's why we're here. Few of us have been in positions of power that could give us the ability to steal from others kind of on this scale. So I think we probably have the same hearts as these oppressive, broken people. We just haven't had really the power and the ability to like oppress others and actually steal their land. If we were given those options, how many of us would take it? Probably more than what we think. Whether we have a chance to follow through with our deceptions or not, we know inside each one of us really is, a, is an oppressive, deceptive tyrant. Because just like the people of Micah's time, even though it was like thousands of years ago, we're attracted to affluence, mostly because we're entitled. And just like Micah's time, we have these pseudo-prophets of affluence. And we listen to them. We love their stories. We love their messages. Get what you can for yourself. You're the center of the universe. You have enough to get it done. You know, the power is within. Be who you want to be. Those are all very entitled messages. They're always my, like, self-focused messages. And entitlement really does lead to oppressing others. Because if you're entitled to something, you're going to take it, and even if it's not yours. And you'll think you'd be just to take it yourself, and you become just like these people that we're reading about. Entitlement springs from the belief that the world revolves around myself, that everything and everybody is kind of here for me. Everything in this world, the people, the things, it's all from my good first. And that creates an easy life. And the easy life is like that kingdom without a king thing. It's really easy to live an easy life. The problem is I think we think the easy life is equated with the good life, but they're very different. The easy life is very different from the good life. We've all bought into the lie that they're the same. Um, we all believe you know, that the easy life is a good, but they're very different. So um, the easy life is a kingdom without a king. Entitlement. We deserve the best, so we should have it regardless of how that affects others. The good life is living under the king, and then there are benefits of the kingdom that come from that. So just two quick examples on that. First is, is money. Yeah, we're going to get talking about things we don't really talk about in public, right? How do you spend your money? Well, the prophets of our culture will say, oh, any money that you earn, is you've earned it, so you deserve to spend it any way that you want to. And I can understand a lot of that. Um, but I don't think maybe we realize how much we swallow those messages whole. Because how much of your money do you spend on you? Is it 100%? I'm not talking about like the necessities, like rent and food and stuff like that, but all the money that we get, is it all spent on stuff only for us? Because money is power, and how we use that money is really, either can be for our benefit or for others, and sometimes we only think about ourselves in it. Do we even plan to have money left over to take advantage of opportunities to bless others when they come up? Because they will come up. Does being part of a church family change the way that you spend money? Does, being, does following Jesus change our financial life at all? It, it ought to. How is it? Or um, uh, another great example is sex. In our time, as in Micah's, you, know, you can follow Jesus and have that not affect your sexual ethic. It's possible. People can live like that. So when a prophet <clears throat> comes to preach about the Bible's sexual ethic, when we read stories about what God um, says about what it means to follow him, uh, there's a choice. We can either have the easy life or the good life. And it is possible to have your parts, uh, some parts of your life follow Jesus and others not. It's also part, possible to be part of a church or other faith community that preaches half-truths that wouldn't preach exactly all the things that, that God's talking about here. Um, and it's possible to be able to do, and for them to be okay with kind of whatever sexual ethic you feel is right for yourself. That's kind of a message we hear. And our time is just like Micah's time. 
But the good life asks something more of us. It asks us to surrender. And surrendering it is really hard for people who are entitled. For people who aren't entitled, it's actually very easy because they're used to surrendering all the time. They're used to being oppressed all the time. But for people who haven't had to flex the muscle and work that muscle of, of surrendering, of giving things up, of sacrifice, it's very difficult. I think the real reason why we think it's hard to surrender is we think we're gonna miss out. If I surrender something like my sexual ethic or money or whatever, like the, all the things that God talks about, that I'm gonna miss out on like, you know, living life to its fullest. But I think the other side is probably more true. If we don't actually surrender to Jesus, to, to, uh, to be able to live a good life, what it means to follow him, then we miss out on the good life. So if we aren't surrendering, we are missing out. And that is, that's where the poverty of the rich comes in. If we haven't had to surrender very much, we're gonna be missing out on being able to. We'll get the good life, the easy, or sorry, we'll get the easy life by not doing that, but like the cut flower, it'll wither and die. But the good life is described in the Bible as like, like a tree planted by streams of water being fed by God's word and it flourishes and it grows. It's not easy, but it's better. The good life is one living under the king, listening to the king's words and not our own. And if we choose the good life, one of surrendering to the king, we should expect friction within. We should expect the parts of us that really want to live the easy life are going to come in contact with parts of us that want to follow the good life. And those things are going to be in conflict with each other. That's all the time. That's the Christian life, conflict. You're welcome. It's fun. Our entitlements will be called into question. Like, what do we actually believe? What, who do we actually want to follow? What kind of prophets are we listening to? It's not always going to feel good. It's not always going to be fun. In fact, it will rarely feel good and be fun. I'm really selling this thing, right? But it is better. It's more, it's more fulfilling. There's meaning in that. And if we're not living the good life, we're actually starved for meaning. And the biggest difficulty for the entitled is the sacrifice. But following Jesus looks different than following ourselves or anyone else. So if we're following Jesus, our lives have to look different. So if you haven't yet sacrificed your entitlements or aren't in that process of, of sacrificing your entitlements, as we all are, the question is, who are you? Who are you following? What prophets are you listening to? Now, though the justice that God is bringing against oppressive systems and people is grim and is dark, there is a glimmer of hope. In verse 5, we see, though God is giving a judgment, therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. And that, that harsh reality of there's going to be no one, these people will have no room to be before me. They will not have my presence. Um, what we do see is that God actually then will have a presence. There is a gathering. There is a congregation. If some people aren't allowed to be in the congregation, that means there is a congregation to begin with. And so there is actually hope for those who've been broken. So under God, there's hope for the oppressed and the oppressor. And that's where we get the end of, uh, of chapter two. And this is really the end of chapters one and two together. The God of justice offers hope to the oppressed. Verses 12 and 13 says, I will surely gather you up. I'll bring you together the remnant of Israel, bring them together like sheep in a pen, like flock in his pasture. So people without a home, who've had their homes stolen from them, who had their land stolen from them, who were under the thumb of the wealthy and the powerful and the rich, people who did not have a plan for the future, they're destitute, they're ostracized, they're thrown away like rubbish. The Lord is gathering up these people, all of them, all of his people. And there's so many, it's noisy. That's what it says the... Um, uh, the place will throng with people. The way that the Hebrew actually talks about it is it's like a noisy chaos because there's so many different kinds of people who are gathered in this thing from all these kinds of backgrounds. It's, like, it's almost like a party. He's bringing them together. They're not going to be in need. They're looked after. I mean, does a sheep 
get any kind of better life than having a pasture. I mean, what else does a sheep need? Water, grass, sheep's got it made. And that's what God is, is, is promising. For anyone who follows Jesus and has been oppressed, sometimes it's difficult to know that God knows. Difficult to believe that, but he does. And he sees you. And he's in the process, even now, of gathering you up. If you have experienced being outcasted, being discarded, let down, taken advantage of, know that hope can be part of your life under the care of Jesus. But there's also hope for the oppressors. Lest we get justice to run away with us and not remember that God is also merciful, there's hope for the oppressors. In our time, we really like justice, but it's difficult to extend mercy to those who oppress others. That's really hard. But thankfully, God is more merciful than us because we're also all oppressors and we need that kind of mercy in our lives, let alone for others. So in verse three, when God says, I'm planning this disaster, he's saying, I'm gonna plan all these horrible things. He's not doing those things immediately. He's giving space. He's saying, you're here, you're doing these horrible things. You, I'm giving you some time. If you keep on doing those horrible things, this is what's gonna happen. The warning is a grace. There's all that time for people to be able to turn away from oppressing people and turn to God, people to realign their lives with what God is asking of them. So he gives them time. Now, God isn't going to be merciful to those who, after hearing those warnings, still choose to go their own path. God will bring his justice to come. But God doesn't want to bring disaster. He loves to show mercy. And that warning leaves space for his mercy. But how is that possible to change, being you know, not perfect in ourselves. Surely it's more than just telling someone to stop it. That's never worked. That counseling sessions, Liz might be able to help us out. Counseling sessions are more than be like, oh yeah, that hard thing that you want to stop doing, oh, just stop it. Like, it doesn't work. That's not how it works. There's, there's some, how, 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 how is this going to work out? Someone has to intervene. Someone has to change us, have to rescue us. Well, I think this goes back to that, that penguin metaphor that we talked about from the start. The penguins were by themselves. They're freezing to death. They're caught in that gully. There's a snowdrift coming in. There's no hope. They're all going to die. And the camera crew is watching. But what happens next is the camera crew writes themselves into the story. The camera crew enter the area of the penguins, and they start digging out a way for them to get, to, for them to get out of this gully. So someone on the outside these humans with spades, digging them out. Someone on the outside with far more power than what the penguins had caught on the inside had to enter the story, had to become part of it, and had to rescue these penguins. If they didn't, they'd all die. This meant hope for the penguins. It meant hope for the babies. And there they are, getting out. Probably like wondering what in the world is going on. If the crew didn't intervene, they would have all died. There was no hope for those penguins. And they needed someone to come to enter their story and to rescue them. When the Lord comes down on the Israelites in Micah, they're hopeless by themselves, and God's giving out his punishment. But this looks forward to, especially that hope section that Micah is talking about, looks forward to when the Lord would come down again in a new way. He would write himself into our stories by taking on our flesh, by becoming like us. So when Jesus, when God himself came into our world, he didn't come to deliver punishment. He took on punishment. So like the camera crew who's rescuing these baby penguins that everyone wants to survive, you know, God wrote himself into our story, intervening in the way that only God can. He sees us in our sin and our hopelessness and our ability to destroy other human beings and our need for a rescue. And out in the cold by ourselves, we're going to die. We're, there's no hope for us. But he didn't leave us there because he breaks through. Now we are oppressed and we oppress others. Unless God breaks through and makes a way, we will all melt under the justice that we rightly deserve. But the oppressed and the oppressors can find their rescue in the Lord. 
For the oppressed, our hope is for justice and a just God. For the oppressors, because we're both, our hope is for forgiveness from a merciful God. And though we should work and strive for justice in our time, we're never guaranteed, guaranteed to see it work out perfectly, this side of heaven. And our needs go deeper than our immediate circumstances. So our biggest need for justice and mercy, the brokenness of our own hearts, is our rescue found in God alone. He's merciful to us, and we don't deserve that. The only way God could remain just whilst also being merciful to those who didn't deserve it was for him to take that punishment on himself. So God did deliver a punishment, but Jesus took it on for us. And on the cross, Jesus was oppressed because we were the oppressors. And that's what we celebrate today. Because we broke this world, he was broken. Because we can't help but spill innocent blood, he spilled his own blood for us. Taking on not only oppressive people, but oppressive, all the oppressive systems of this world. We have all put ourselves in God's place, thinking we're entitled, thinking we're powerful, thinking we deserve everything, thinking we deserve the easy life. And in order for God to free us from our oppressive system of sin, as well as our own heart's oppressive behaviors, was for God to put himself in our place. He takes full punishment on us, gives us a new life so that we can stand in the assembly of the Lord, even when his justice is going on full strength. We can be gathered up. We can be rescued. We can get the gift of the good life and enjoy wholeness in Jesus. And that's what this table symbolizes. God's justice and his mercy given to us through grace. And so what we do uh, at Redeemer is um, we, we're going to sing some songs. We have three songs we're going to sing. And as we sing, we'll take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice or the wine. Now, this is for anyone who uh, would say they follow Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. Um, if you don't follow Jesus yet, uh, we would ask you not to do this because you're, we don't want you to lie to yourself to do something that you don't actually believe in what's going on inside. Um, or if you haven't done this before and you do want to experience that justice, you do want to experience that mercy that we've been talking about, you're more than welcome to join us uh, as we all get to enjoy God's free gift, free gift of grace. Let me pray. God, as we come to you knowing that uh, we come with empty hands, in fact, even worse than that, Lord, we come with guilty hands before you. But we lament how, how horrible we can be to our fellow human beings. What kind of people are we? Lord, even in the small things that we actually do in our own lives, things that we don't think anyone sees, Lord, we know that you see all, you know all. And so we come to you as people who are broken because we've been oppressed by others. We come to you as people who are broken because we've done the same. And Lord, what we receive with our open hands is your grace, your love, your mercy that flows to us, regardless of our past, regardless of our mixed motives, even in the present, regardless of how we're gonna mess it up in the future. Lord, you love us and you call us to live a better life. So God, we pray, please continue your work of grace in us. Please continue, even though you saved us, continue to be in that process of saving us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to be able to lift our eyes above our circumstances, above our fears, above our needs, above our wants, to be able to look to you and to be able to engage the world in a new way, filled with power that comes from your Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen.